Praise the Lord. Good to see you all here. And we are here to learn about God and to bless each other. And to uh, to uh, bless the Lord. I think that is right. So we're here with all from different areas, different places. Some some are children here, some are grandparents, some are mothers and fathers and singles. And we all have different experiences. Does God's word address them all? <laughs> yeah. Well, I um, the title this morning is The Identity of God's People. But I think, yes, before we... Before we go on, let us pause for prayer. If you, could, if you don't mind, if you can, just stand for prayer. And let's pray. It's Father, we are thankful this morning. Well, we trust we are. We should be thankful this morning. And we come before you, Lord, with thanksgiving for what you have done for us. That we are here, a, an enormous recipient of your blessings, that even when all seems lost, as the song says, we could still count innumerable blessings. So, Lord, thank you for being a good God. Lord, we also recognize need in our lives and do ask you, Lord, to instruct and teach us this morning and meet the needs that we have whether they be mentally, emotionally, intellectually, or morally, Lord, that you would instruct us and deliver us. Many of the Psalms, Lord, that, uh, that you have given to us speak not only of your blessing, but also of the conflict, and the conflict is real. So I pray, Lord, we, uh, we just pray you would bless us this morning with your presence and your and your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The four big questions of life. I don't know if this is actually, I know I heard him. I know that Ravi Zachariah used him. I don't know where it came from or whatever, but four main questions of life. Who am I? Where did I come from? What am I here for? And where am I going after I die? Four questions of life. It can be rephrased a little bit different, but that's the basic ones. And God answers all of those questions comprehensively in his word. Now, can you imagine not knowing God's word and not knowing the answer to those questions. I know somewhere between five and ten years ago, I was training a, a young man, probably low 20s. He grew up in Homelstown. He lived with one of his parents in Homelstown and the other one at Pine Grove or Schuylkill County, somewhere up there. He never read the Bible. I asked him, you mean you never held the Bible in your hand and read it. He said, no, I never did. 
This was, of course, before, a little before at least everything had gone digital. <laughs> now you don't need to do that necessarily. So we don't have to go that far. Many people don't know where they come. They don't know who they are. They don't know where they come from. Well, they actually have ideas, but they're wrong. But we don't have that problem, do we? We do know who we are and where we came from. And that we have an identity, we have a purpose, and we have an, a, a destination because God tells us. As Hebrews 1, as the word begins, God, who in sundry times and in divers' manners, has spoken to us in times past by the prophets, but he's spoken to us today by his Son. And and so he's spoken in many different ways in the past, and now he's spoken to us through the Lord Jesus, and now he's spoken to us through the apostles. God has spoken. And if we want to look at blessings this morning, let's look at the blessing. We are the blessed recipients of God's word. We are. And this morning's text considers basically two of those questions that I had they, they addressed them directly, but not comprehensively. And it answers those questions in uh, two of the two of those four questions that we had. It answers them more in a corporal, corporate context, although it applies to the individual. So you can turn to First Peter chapter two. And as is my habit, I get um, engrossed in the details, and I don't get very far. So it'll be that way this morning again. Um, maybe sometime I can break free from that. But First uh, Peter chapter two, we're going to read verses nine and ten. It must be in Second Peter. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show, show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Of those four questions that I, that are life-speak questions, which two are answered here? You want to just venture a guess? Who am I? Who am I? That one is clearly in center. What's my purpose? That's it. What am I here for? Good. That's what's in these verses. Um, we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, and to show for we are here to show forth the praises of Him who has called us out of darkness. The uh, the verses begin with the word but. And but is the conjunction 
used to introduce something that was contrasting that had been mentioned before. What has been mentioned before? Well, you look in Peter uh, 7 and 8, it talks about, well, let's just read it. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, where unto also they were appointed. So the, it's, it's talking about them and it's talking about us. Peter is talking to us. And we are believers. Now, it doesn't call them unbelievers, although that is true. What does it call them? It calls them disobedient. They are unbelievers, but they won't obey. And then because they refuse to obey, they stumbled over the rock and over the word. God also gives them an identity. It may not be one they accept. And that's the structure of the entire world. There are, if you want to distill it down, the entire world is distilled down to two camps. It's the disobedient and the but ye. The disobedient and the but ye. But ye are not disobedient. And it's those two camps. Now you can, uh, you can subcategorize those two groups basically, but you distill it down to the essence, you end up with those two groups. And the word but is the conjunction that contrasts those two groups. The disobedient and the but ye. So, let's talk about the but ye. <laughs> what are ye? Who are we? What is our identity? To whom do we belong? Who are we like? Identity has always fascinated me. I have tried a lot to understand the whole idea of identity because identity is part and partial of our human nature. And it, it's a little bit like water to a fish. You, you live in it and you don't even realize you have it. It's just there and you operate in it and you have it, you use it, but you don't even think about it. It's just reality. And so we we live in America, and we have an identity as Americans. That's an identity. We were born here. Uh, related to the word identity is the word identical. I don't actually know what, I didn't check it out. What is the root word of these words? I don't know. <laughs> but identical. It means the same, and to identify with someone else means to have some of the same characteristics or values or beliefs or experiences that they do. In this case, we're all U.S. citizens because we were all born here, except Casia wasn't. Maybe some others weren't either. I don't know. Those who have experienced the death of a child can identify with others who have lost a child. Even though the circumstances may be 
very different. The age may be different, and many things may be different, yet there is an identity. The identity remains. In a similar way, we have a spiritual identity. We can identify with believers who are true believers. We can identify with people who have who 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 were sinners and they knew they were sinners and they knew they were lost. And then in some way the circumstances will differ, the age will differ, lots of things will differ, but there is a process where someone goes from being a sinner to repenting of their sins and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as varied as that may be, you can now identify with those people. There is a common identity. Somewhere, somehow, we heard the gospel. We recognized the Lord Jesus as the sacrificial lamb, that he paid for our sins. And we believed, and we were changed. Changed in our hearts, and changed in our lives. So we can identify with people who have experienced that. Now, in many ways, and that is true, you can subcategorize those people, <laughs> but there is a common identity. So then, God then gives us an identity. So, what for identity does God give? Well, He says, You are, and He gives us this here commonality. A chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Peter here uses Old Testament terminology that was used for Israel, and he used it to identify and describe the church. Israel was chosen by God, and she was to be this holy nation. And uh, I'm going to go a little bit into that history God said, and I'm gonna, you don't have to turn to these verses, but he said very plainly, before Israel entered into covenant with him, it was a proposal. In, uh, in Exodus 19, this was before the, the, the Ten Commandments were given, and he said to them, now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So you see where Peter is getting his identities from. He's getting it from Israel. Soon after this, the nation did enter into covenant with, with the Lord, with Jehovah. Because this is actually how it happened. Later on, Moses read the covenant, and the people said, Everything the Lord has said, we will do. And does anybody know what Moses did then? Anyone know what Moses did after the, after the people said, What the Lord has said, we will do after he read the covenant? Anybody have any idea? They had these sacrifices on the altar, and Moses took the blood and he sprinkled the people. 
that's actually what he did. And, and it's interesting. I was just, I was just thinking and meditating on that. But there was a time and a place and an event and a procedure that sealed the Israelites as God's own special chosen people. It was actually an event that happened. And I was thinking, how did that happen for us? And, and, and I think you can pick holes in my thinking a little bit because I would talk about baptism. Uh, it says in Hebrews that they were baptized in the sea unto Moses. So it's a little bit of a, uh, so what I'm saying here, but I, I, I like, I like the idea when, when the Israelites entered into covenant with them and then they were sprinkled. It actually, it, is like baptism. <clears throat> it's the final, that was the final step that the Israelites took. So they were, we, they accepted the covenant that God had given and now they were, they uh, were under that law. And baptism is a little bit like that. It's the final step into the community, the church of God. The, the thing is public. Baptism is public. The, 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 the baptism is asked some questions. Well, before it is asked questions, it's instructed. It, uh, it receives instruction. <clears throat> and... Um, as to what this commitment means, and he understands, and he agrees with the instructions, and then he's asked some questions, and he affirms that he has experienced, and just look at the Israelites, they have been slaves in Egypt, and then they came out of Egypt, and um, they experienced the deliverance of the Lord, and they forsook Egypt, and they were, they were following Moses in this sense. That is actually what happens in baptism. And then um, they are asked, and based on that confession of faith and his commitment to the Lord, he is baptized. And he is now a full and official part of the community. <laughs> the last step. So I, I don't know. Uh, you can poke holes in that one, but I was meditating on that. But Peter, at that point, I mean, Moses was talking in the past tense, if you will do this. But Peter is not talking in the past tense. He says, you are, because all those people are the people of God. And in Deuteronomy, 40 years later, after the next generation came around, Moses told this new generation of people the same thing. He said, for thou, in Deuteronomy 7, Verses 6 to 8. For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God has chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. So the Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any other people, than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he has sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the house of hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. 
So he's saying the same thing to the next generation in the past tense, like Peter is doing. So, I want you to think, this is collectively, but I want you to think individually. I am a chosen generation. I'm a royal priesthood. I'm a holy nation. Well, you can't do that individually, right? (laughs) You know, if God's people... Of all the people of the world, God's people should not struggle with a low sense of self, like they call self-esteem, whatever, or a low image of self. They shouldn't feel, they shouldn't have a problem because, or maybe I should say it this way, they should not consider themselves of little or no value. That would be a better way to express it. Because God puts layer upon layer upon layer of privilege on his people. You are. You're chosen. Well, let's find out what all this means. Well, if you're chosen, uh, it immediately speaks of God's generosity, his grace. God did not choose Israel because they were such a good people. Did God choose you? On what basis did he choose you? Because you were such a good person. (laughs) Which one of you wants to say, God chose me because I was such a good person? We weren't. He didn't choose them because they were a great people. Did he choose you because you had such a high education that he needed you? God needed you. That's why he chose you. No. He loved us. He, God chose Israel because he loved them and because he promised them. And he had a purpose for them. Well, he did the same thing for us. He chose us because he loved us. Because Jesus didn't die for us because we deserved it, because we didn't. Then the word generation. Excuse me. Generation is somewhat misleading because the way we use the word generation today is a span of time. And that is not what it means here at all. This, if, if we ever update the King James Version, this is one of the words that will be updated. It actually means a race or a kindred or a family. When Paul was called, I'm a stock of Israel, the stock of is this word generation. It's a family line. It's a generation. Uh, it's a, if you want to look in the animal kingdom, it's a species, a certain species of animals. <clears throat> um, when in, in Matthew, when Jesus was given the parable of the kingdom, he said, you throw a net out into the sea. And you catch all kinds of fish. That word kinds is the same word. <laughs> and then he says you sort out the bad and the, the good you keep and you, you keep the good. And that, that's actually one way we could look at it this morning. Uh, when, I don't know, I don't do a lot of fishing, but when you go fishing, you, you, you don't, there are certain fish you don't keep, but you're fishing for trout. You keep the trout, but if you catch a sunny, you throw it back in. Nobody wants to eat them. So God has chosen our kind. 
we have been chosen. God actually had us in mind, and he said, I want that kind, and, and he has chosen us. So you are a chosen generation. It's the kind, not the good kind, but the kind that has recognized their guilt and has confessed it and has come and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has chosen that kind. Royal priesthood. Ye are a chosen generation. Ye are a royal priesthood. Now, in the Old Testament, there were priests who stood between God and the people. See, even uh, an important man like David, David was, he could not. David could not do certain things. Only a priest could do it. This entire, entire sacrificial system was developed by God. Put in place by God. You had the daily sacrifice. You had the sin sacrifice. You had the day of atonement. And and I haven't studied it extremely well, but there's lots of sacrifices. Only the priest could do that. So what happened the moment Jesus died on the cross? That's when that veil was rent between there and the holies of holies was opened up. And God says, now we are royal priests. We're all priests. We're royal priests. We're You, female and male, everyone who's a child of God is part of the royal priesthood. Now, if I tell you that you are a royal, you're part of a royal priesthood, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Well, besides a blank look on your face, (laughs) what does that mean? Okay, I'm part of a royal priesthood. You might as well say I'm part of, you know, and you can say some unintelligible phrase. What does that mean? Well, let's look at the occupation of responsibility of the priest. Because this is actually the main, the main body of the message this morning. Individually, we are priests that uh, says that there in, in, in Revelation. Collectively, we are a community, part of a community of priests. Priests have a connection to God. Our royal priesthood is our connection to God, and we're all priests. And this is actually called the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. There's actually a doctrine. You can study this doctrine, the priesthood of all believers. So, number one, as priests, we draw near to God. Turn to Hebrews 10. We're answering the question, you're part of a royal priesthood. What, 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 what does that consist of? What does that identity flesh itself out? Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 22. 
Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So as part of the priesthood, we can now enter into that holy. We can draw near to God in a way that was not possible under the Old Testament. Now, we still have a high priest. You got that, I hope. We are not the high priest, but we are the priesthood. We are invited, in fact, we are urged to draw near to God ourselves. In the place that usually only the high priest could. And it's a new, and it's a living way. Because the blood has been offered permanently on that blood. The blood is permanently on the altar. Therefore, we can come into his presence at any time. Reverently, humbly, thankfully. And we can worship the Lord. And we can, and as it states in Hebrews four sixteen. He said, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may find mercy, obtain mercy and find grace and help in time of need and to help in time of need. So we can come before the Lord's presence in worship, but also for what we need. Now, that is unlike the Catholic system that required a priest or a saint. And I'm not real familiar, but I know that you in that system the laity could not go to God directly. They had to go through the layer. I'd like to illustrate that a little bit this morning. We're going to call that God. And down here, we have, well, we're going to have people. The uh, the Catholic system, you had a priest, and you had the church, and you had the pope, and you had the different levels. And the only way you could go to God was through this system. And the reformers corrected that part. It was unbiblical. It was unauthorized. They said, no, you can go to God directly. That is the priesthood of all believers. Each person has direct access to God. And you want to make it really tacked through the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> but the Anabaptists had a variation to that. They did not. Anybody know what, what is missing there when we're talking about a royal priesthood? What would you change there? Yes. Don't take away the individual line, but add a lateral one. Add a lateral line. Somehow, in the back of my mind, I hear a John D. Martin saying that you cannot come to God unless you take your brother with you. 
<laughs> Something of that line. That's the concept. <clears throat> the priesthood of all believers is we have access to God individually. But we cannot uninvolve ourselves from our brothers and our sisters. And that is very practical. That is actually the reason, one of the reasons why you have that verse there in Matthew or there where it says, if you bring your gift to the altar, there's somebody worshiping. Now, of course, an Old Testament concept, and in that sense, he's still going to the altar and going through the priest, but that has been removed now. If you bring your gift to the altar, if you're ready to come before God, but you know that your brother has ought against you, just skip it. Go to that lateral line first and then come before God. That creates a little bit of an urgency that we can't come, we can't be completely right with God unless we are also, uh, have dealt with, with things on a horizontal level. That is actually traditionally why Churches have preparatory services before communion. Before communion, and, and, and I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but there's a concept there that I am, I am agreeing with. That in a communion service, it's, it's, a, it's a little more of a special event. And I don't think you should wait till, be, like some churches do, wait till before communion time and then you make everything right. That should be done on a daily, and it should be done regularly. So that's not the, that's not the point I'm bringing out. But if you're not right, then you should refrain from communion. If things are not right, either vertically or horizontally. And if a church is not at rest and not at peace with each other, then they probably should postpone the communion service, that is the concept there. <clears throat> and, and for obvious reasons, this needs to be temporary. <clears throat> but if, if we realize that we can't effectively come to God effectively unless we are reconciled to our brother, it causes an urgency to do so, to correct that. <clears throat> so, you are a royal priesthood. What is that? Well, royal priests, they draw near to God. And like I said, we draw directly to God. Number two is that priests are ambassadors for God. Not all people have access to God for various reasons, right? It's because they are sinners, it's because of unbelief. It's because of ignorance and who knows what else. There are multitudes of people who still need someone to represent God to them. Priests do that. And let's read. You can turn to Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 18 to 21. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. 
to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us that word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. And here's the the rest of the gospel. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That, that is, let's see, this, this passage answers actually two of the big questions. Who am I and what am I here to do? Well, you are an ambassador and you are here to represent Christ to the world. That's definitely part of it. So your occupation is a ministry of reconciliation. You know, that is the function of a priest. The function of a priest was to represent or stand between that. And so you are a royal, we are a royal priesthood, individually and collectively. And we are to represent Jesus to people, individually and corporately. The Lord Jesus did the work. That work is done. But the word needs to go out. That means to preach the gospel. It means to disciple. And it means every Christian is called to do that in various ways. The world hated Jesus because he testified that their deeds were evil. You know, the world did not hate Jesus because he healed them or because he fed them, or because he accepted them. He didn't, they, the world, did not hate him for that. They hated him because he testified that their deeds were evil. Now, Jesus did heal people, and he did minister to people, and he did accept many people. And we should, too. We should clean up after a disaster. We should feed the hungry. We should help those in crisis. Uh, Absolutely, we should. We should minister in a multitude of ways. But these are avenues to communicate the gospel. Like for Jesus Christ, they are avenues to communicate the truth to them. What happens if you tell people that their deeds are? are evil. Will they like you? See, I, 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 it's, what do you call it? Friendship evangelism, whatever you call that. That's, it's, it's good. In, in a, in a, in a proper place. Get someone, get them to know them. But if that's all the further it gets, you actually haven't yet communicated the gospel. It may make them open up, but sometimes, you need to tell people that their deeds are evil. And it had to be tactful. It had to be done right. And the Lord Jesus did it right. Look at him as an example and the apostles. 
um, I remember. Maybe you maybe you heard the story too, and and maybe there's some tack missing here. I I don't know. You can judge this, but somebody, a new neighbor moved into somebody that I know, and uh, and they came over because of uh, some kind of market that they had there. And the Christian found out that this is a couple who is actually divorced and remarried. And he said, oh, that is wrong, sin. And that was the last time that couple ever came there. Now, maybe it wasn't tactful. <laughs> maybe that you shouldn't do that the first time. I don't know. But it created a, they testified that what they were doing is wrong. And it created that immediately. <clears throat> so, like Jesus, we need to be tactful. We need to know where people are at. We need to, to uh, there's a lot of things there. But in the end, we need to actually tell them that they are wrong. That their works are evil. That's what Jesus did. And he even gave lists of where they were wrong. So we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. So that as royal priest, we do that individually and we can do that, do that collectively as ambassadors for God. Number three, priests offer up sacrifices. But the sacrificial system is abolished. So we no longer offer up sacrifices, right? No, we actually do offer sacrifices. And there are numerous sacrifices. We're just now, in a, as a sub-point, we're going to look at numerous sacrifices that priests offer up, that we as priests are to offer up. First, there is a very familiar one. You don't have to turn there. Romans 12, 1 and 2. You, some of you could quote it by heart. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, that holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So priests offer up sacrifices. Well, the very first thing they offer up is themselves, their own bodies. And we're talking individually and we're talking collectively. God wants our bodies. Not burned on an altar, but sacrificed for him, to him. He wants our bodies to be used in a way that honors him and his will and his directives exclusively. In the Old Testament, it was very clear when something was sanctified, it was, it was set apart as holy. It was not ever to be used for anything unholy. That is the concept. <laughs> that is our bodies are to be used are to be used as a sacrifice to God. See, he doesn't want just our hearts. Imagine that. He wants our hands. 
and our feet and our mouth and our ears and our tongue and our eyes and our time and our energy and our gifts. And so in conjunction with that, that in verse 2 of Romans, we do not give time and energy and gifts to the world. We don't do that. Everything is committed to the Lord. And um, if we would, if we, if I would go fast enough, we could get the next two verses where it talks about where Peter tells them to abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. But we we won't get there this morning. But we that is part of the sacrifice, abstaining from fleshly lust. Both the giving of ourselves to God and the abstaining from fleshly lusts are a sacrifice to God. So, priests draw near to God, we read about that, and they sacrifice to God. Priests have always sacrificed. Now, obviously, you can have heathen priests that sacrifice to a false god. But a priest, by its very nature, is a sacrificing being. Priest, sacrifice. So, as a royal priesthood, and how do you approach God without a sacrifice? Well, we have to sacrifice to the Lord Jesus, but we also sacrifice our bodies. Uh, the modern concept Come to God just as you are. God accepts you the way you are. Well, that has to be nuanced a little bit. <laughs> uh, there's that verse, actually, it's, it's in our psalm book. <clears throat> Shall I come just as I am? Um, no, sorry. I want to say the refrain first. Oh my, I didn't read the number, put the number in here. Do you know where that is? Uh, 629? No, I don't think that's correct. Uh, that's just as I am without one plea. That one will be very similar. But... um. It's the one in invitation. 726. That sounds right. I had looked it up this morning. Thank you. The refrain says, as you are, just as you are, come to Jesus, come today. He will kindly welcome you, take your sins away. And that's the idea, just come as you are. But you look at the rest of the song, he's coming with sacrifice. Okay, he's coming with a certain mindset. What, what I'm, what I'm here, what I want to bring out here is that we just don't just saunter in God's presence. You don't do that. As a priest, you come, but you come a certain way. And, uh, he's coming with all his guilt and sin. He said, if I will open wide my heart, open wide my heart, will he enter in? And the second verse, Shall I come, vow as I am? There's that recognition. And bend low at Jesus' feet. There is that worship. Shall I plead his pardoning grace and his love entreat? 
So it is coming in a certain way. This person is coming, surrendering and sacrificing himself. So, and the reason I'm bringing this out is to recognize that we serve a holy God. We do come before him with reverence and godly fear. It's a good refrain to coming just as you are, but in the context. <clears throat> Another sacrifice is one that we were doing this morning. I'm going to read it in Hebrews 13:15. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. That's what we were doing this morning. Did you know this morning you were, we, were, we were acting like a royal priesthood? That's the application this morning. We, you say, well, what's a royal priesthood? Well, you were doing it. When we get together and we praise the Lord, we are to praise him as well as we can and from our hearts with enthusiasm. Now, uh, Tim was trying to get the young men under 21 to say something. Now, you know what the nature of sacrifice is? A sacrifice is something that's difficult. It costs you something. It's if David had it right when he went to that threshing floor and he wanted to offer sacrifices to stem the plague that was on the land. And that man, I forgot his name, just wanted to give it to David. He said, no, no, I'm not going to sacrifice to the Lord something that costs me nothing. If yeah. Sacrifice costs you something. If by very nature, if it's not cost you anything, it doesn't it's not a sacrifice. So I think of you young men, that would have cost you something to open up your mouth and say something. <laughs> or you young ladies, whoever it is. That would have just been fine. Because it costs. You see, sacrifice indicates a difficulty or a loss. And it is not, sacrifice of praise is not just, and I'm going to repeat, not just, not just the overflow of how we feel. If it's the overflow of how you feel, praise God. But if you can praise God when it costs you something, that's a sacrifice. The sacrifice of praise continually. Sometimes we don't feel like it, but the question is, is the Lord still worthy? And he is. I, I actually, this morning, I felt the very thing. This morning, I thought, okay, I, I'm going to need to feed the flock. And I just don't feel quite inspired at the moment. And and I went through my processes. Well, what, 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 what for thoughts am I thinking? Oh, yeah, I know what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that I need to be this kind of person and I don't measure up. And I, you know, you know, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but you get those thoughts that take you down. And I had to 
praised the Lord when I didn't feel like it. And then there was a change. Now, don't worship or put on a show when you're, a, when you're in hypocrisy. In other words, when things aren't right, don't, just, don't, that's not, there will be no blessing in that. But sometimes I feel like singing and worshiping God at church. Sometimes I don't. Is that right? <laughs> but our feelings are not reality, are they? The, the sacrifice of praise is a call. That's reality. So I'd like to ask a question here. What is going through your mind when you are singing a song here on a Sunday morning? Is your mind in worship and praise or whatever the song is at? Or is your mind somewhere else? Well, if you're like me, you can confess. It's not always at where you're singing. So you're sleepy because you didn't get enough sleep tonight, last night. Well, praise God anyway. Worshiping God when you don't feel like it. Exactly. A sacrifice. It costs you something. It costs you something to put your mind away and there. And, and you're sleepy or whatever reason it is. <clears throat> it, when the act of praise is costly and it's difficult because of the circumstances of your life or whatever it is, and you praise God anyway, that's a sacrifice that is acceptable with God. Let us offer the sacrifice of the praise of God continually. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. So, praise God when you are working or at work. Worship the Lord in a restaurant before you eat your food. Praise the Lord when you hit your thumb with a hammer or prick your finger with a needle. Praise is a sacrifice. It's costly. It's difficult. But royal priests offer the sacrifice of praise. Continually. We are called continually to offer that sacrifice. See, worship and praise is actually obedience. Uh, in fact, David, I didn't look it up, but I know it's somewhere in the Psalms that he said, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And basically what he's saying, Soul, soul, you will bless the Lord. <laughs> he is actually directing his soul. And I think at that time when Siglag was destroyed and their, everything was gone, their wives and children and possessions, and David encouraged himself in the Lord. Somehow, well, just think of Job. You think Job felt like praising the Lord after all his children and all his wealth were gone. But he said he went and he worshipped God. He did not feel like it. I can pretty well ascertain you. Praise the Lord continually. It's a sacrifice. 
Another sacrifice is doing good. And that's actually right the next verse after the one we just read, Hebrews 13, 16. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Doing good. That's a sacrifice. You know, I saw that at a church picnic that we had a few weeks ago. I just saw a lot of people going around doing good, (laughs) blessing others, doing this, giving that, serving here, bringing that. There was lots of doing good. And a a lot of it was spontaneous. Uh, Nobody was in charge of it, really. (laughs) But it, it happened, and it was a blessing. And make this phone call and, and that one and so on. So, so uh, but it extends beyond that. Sacrifice to do good. Do good to your neighbor. Do good in your community. Earlier on I had said about, you know, the, the disasters that we, that you do and, and then you need to go beyond that. But this is part of that. This is a sacrifice to, um, to go and help with cleanups and things like that. Doing good in your community. Doing good in your family. In unobserved ways. <laughs> or at church. No one knows it. I know things are going on here. I have no idea who's doing it, but it's happening. They're sacrifices. God is pleased with such sacrifices because they are, because they take time, they take energy, they take thought. And you lose what else you could have been doing at the time. Time, energy, or money, or sleep, or whatever, a conversation. Um, I think of the sacrifice that the various... um, I think of the words... The various offices that we have here and someone needs to go out and watch the children while they play and they lose out of here. That, that's a doing good sacrifice. God is pleased with them and you can multiply that with any way you want to. <clears throat> and in marriage, family life, church life, work life, community life, Jesus went about doing good. And of course, communicating that in this verse here, communicate, forget not, and that is simply giving money and that's a sacrifice and you say well he who lends to the lord the lord's going to pay me back so am i really sacrificing i mean i'm going to if you pay money you lend to the lord so he's going to pay you back a whole lot more than you gave so is it a sacrifice yeah it's still a sacrifice because you're doing it now when you could use it somewhere else and you're doing it in faith god will do that in faith. <laughs> so that's a sacrifice as well. It's an investment. It's a faith investment. It all belongs to God anyway. So we are a royal priesthood. I hope, I hope you understand a little bit more what it means to be a royal priest by now. As priests, we draw near to God. We are ambassadors for God to people who don't know him. And we bring sacrifices to God, and we enumerate a number of those sacrifices. Our next identity, then, is... And, and by the way, that was my main one. The other ones will not be as, as long, so you can relax a little bit. Is 
the next identity that we are given to by God if we are called a holy nation. We collectively are a holy nation. And that's the idea is we're a society, a community, a common gathering, a, a common gathering of people with with that belong to the same allegiance. You know how a nation is. Um, we we in America live in a pluralistic. It's a melting pot. That's not the concept that is actually here. This is not a melting pot. When you're called a holy nation, it talk about a people group that have a common a common allegiance. Like you, if you think of America as the the, the pledge of allegiance, uh, that's supposed to hold this pluralistic melting pot together under this pledge to to steal this flag and this this ideal and so on. But we have we are we are a holy nation in the sense that we're all citizenships of we're all citizens of heaven, which means we all live by the rules of heaven. Collectively, we do that. <clears throat> so we have common visions and we have common values. We have similar allegiance. That's the idea. You are a holy nation. That's our identity under God. So, yeah, the Pledge of Allegiance does say something about under God, doesn't it? It was inserted because of communism in the 50s. But we are a holy nation under God. That's what we are, a holy people. And ultimately, we are acting not, well, we are under civil and earthly rule, but that's not our ultimate citizenship Next, we are a peculiar people. This is another one of those words that will be updated. Peculiar means now, sort of means strange or odd. If someone says you are peculiar, they're making a statement about you. (laughs) But that's not what it means here. Although someone could say that of us in the way that it's meant now. But it's not the way God means. It means, peculiar here means a possession. It means something acquired. If we see reality, we see ourselves as acquired. And we are owned by the Lord. We belong to him because he bought us. And I want you to understand that this is not slavery. Because we, none of us, none of us here are autonomous. None of us are ever going to escape servanthood, slavery, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> All of us are going to be slaves to something. When someone was, uh, when a slave was put on an auction block and did not know who his master was, he would hope for a good master. But he had no control of it. If he got a good master, He was privileged. He was blessed. We have a good master. (laughs) We are privileged. So uh, when the Lord owns owns us and purchased us and bought us, 
we are belonging to him, we are a very, very, very privileged people because we we were purchased from a horrible master and now we belong to a good master. Acts 27 verse 23 is Paul and he is in the middle of that ship on his way to Rome and they're going to get shipwrecked. But he's had a dream one night and then he stood up in front of everybody the next morning and he said, For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve. Whose I am is what I want to bring out here. Paul is a prisoner. (laughs) He can't go anywhere. He got chains around him. He's not going anywhere. But who owns Paul? Not Rome. Not that master. Who is Paul serving? Paul's not serving that ship owner or that whoever's taking care of him. Even though as a prisoner, he still belonged to God. And you know what that means? That means Paul, Paul's condition was not ideal. But it does mean this. It doesn't matter what for government we are under. We can still serve God. We still belong to God and we still can serve God. Paul could serve God as a prisoner, unjustly as a prisoner. Um, this, this is a little bit of preamble as we go down through Peter. We're actually going to get into the area of government. We will get there eventually. So, in in one sense, yeah. Let's see if I should put all this in here or not. Yeah. We can serve the Lord and we belong to the Lord, Christian, under any government authority. That's why Christians in China and the Christians in, even in North Korea horrible situations still belong to God and can still serve God. They may die for it, but they can do that because because we are we are his purchased possession. And he purchased us. And that means he owns us. And that's why the idea of tithing that 10% belongs to God and the rest of it belongs to me. It's, and I don't think, I don't know if anyone believes that. But let, let's just take it to its practical application. God owns it all. We are stewards of it all. We don't just give a tithe so that the rest is ours. And we can do with the, what we want with the rest. We are his purchased possession. Therefore... Whatever money we use to buy a house, to buy a car, or a meal, or a trinket, (laughs) you do it as the Lord's servant, purchased by him. We should have that awareness to us that we are stewards of God. He owns us, and what we have is his We are stewards of it. We are to use it in conformity under his blessing. 
And it goes beyond that. Of course, it goes to like that goes to very be the living sacrifice and thoughts and actions and hopes and everything your future, everything belongs to God because He owns us. So, I'm not going to be fanatical. I'm not going to be a wide-eyed, fire-breathing, pulpit-pounding, fanatical person. You don't need to be that. But you do need to be sold out to the Lord. That, that sold out is the concept that he owns you. Now, you don't have to say, I'm sold out to God. But find at least some way in your life to show it. <laughs> and I think you ought to say it as well. We ought to say it as well. Find some way to show that you are sold out to the Lord. So there we have it. We have a chosen generation. Our identity, we are chosen because of God's love and not because of our worth. We have a royal priesthood that we are elevated to the royal family, adopted in fact, with direct access to the king, with the benefits and the responsibilities of priesthood towards others. A holy nation, and we are gathered together under the same banner, with allegiance to the same authority, having embraced the same values and visions. And a peculiar people, which means the creator of the universe, bought us to do good things for us and with us. And verse 10, that ye should show forth, 9 and 10, that ye should show forth the praises who had called you, out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. So what are we here for? That we may proclaim or show forth or demonstrate the praises or the virtues or the character of God. How should we do that? Well, with our sacrifice. Your marriage says something about God. How I handle my money says something about God. How I relate to you says something about God. How I behave myself at work. I am to proclaim, I am to demonstrate the virtues of God everywhere we go. And, yes, uh, in the next verse it talks about abstaining. It talks about a war. <laughs> so I'm giving the ideal this morning. And the next one will go in a little bit into that kind of that war there. But we need to replace our selfish concern or self-concern or self-thoughts with God-thoughts. And God concern. And have an attitude of thankfulness rather than an attitude of entitlement. I found a quote that I thought would be very appropriate to close. Because as I think of this, Peter was talking to a, um, to a persecuted church who, who were really facing things. And uh, there's a quote from the early Anabaptist time that uh, France 
Agricola. He was an enemy of the of them, and he was he 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 was he wrote against the Anabaptists. But there was something he wrote about that was interesting, and he said this. Among the existing heretical sects, he thought they were heretical, <laughs> there is none which in appearance leads a more modest or pious life than the Anabaptists. As concerns the outward public life, they are irreproachable. There's no lying, deception, swearing, strife, harsh language, no intemperate eating or drinking, no outward personal display is found among them. But humility, patience, uprightness, meekness, honesty, temperance, straightforwardness in such measure that one would suppose that they had the Holy Spirit of God. Which he didn't believe they did, but it was just pretty hard for him to deny that it just seems like they might have. I suppose they did. Oh, to God, that people would talk about us that way. May the Lord bless you.